So hello and welcome to another episode of Conversations in Anthropology at Deakin, a podcast where we talk about life, the universe and anthropology. Each episode, we sit down with a visiting fellow academic or two uh, to talk about their work, about the state of the discipline and what anthropology has to tell us in the 21st century. I'm David Giles. I'm a lecturer in anthropology at Deakin University, and I'm joined by my co-host, as always, Timothy Neal, a research fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation. In this episode, we're back to the roundtable format and a conversation with two anthropologists who have recently published books about land rights and development in Papua New Guinea. Guest number one is Monica Minigal. Uh, Monica is an associate professor in anthropology at the University of Melbourne, for many years, she's worked with Gubo and Batamani people in Papua New Guinea, studying the impacts of modernity on their understandings and practices. Most recently, Monica is the author, with Peter Dwyer, of Navigating the Future, an Ethnography of Change in Papua New Guinea, published in 2017 by ANU Press. Meanwhile, guest number two is Victoria Stead. Uh, Victoria is a DECRA Research Fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalization where she works across the disciplines of anthropology, social theory, and political studies. Her research has a strong Pacific focus, and she's conducted fieldwork in Papua New Guinea, Timor-Leste, Vanuatu, and Australia. And she's the author of Becoming Landowners, Entanglements of Custom and Modernity in Papua New Guinea and Timor-Leste, published uh, by University of Hawaii Press also last year in 2017. So without further ado, let's just get to the conversation with Monica and Victoria. Uh, so we start off with a, a broad icebreaker about how you first got into anthropology in the first place and hit us with your most embarrassing anecdotes, <laughs> your deepest, darkest existential realisations, uh, or just tell us how you found anthropology. Well, I had absolutely no idea about anthropology when I started uni. I did the usual thing. I was going to satisfy my mother's dreams of me being a doctor, so got about a year and a half in and knew that um, no one wanted me by their sick bed and I didn't want to be there. So I dropped out, having done straight science through school, explored arts and did as many different things as I could. Anthropology was the one that stuck. Mm. But now thinking back on it in hindsight, I guess I was it stuck because I was primed. I spent my childhood reading science fiction and fantasy and imagining what if, what if things mm. were different. And now I found there was a whole discipline that was about asking just that, mm. what if, what if things were done differently? You know, I've been reading The Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin in the last couple of months, and as I was reading your book, I kept thinking about that and wondering if you had that any of that in mind as you were writing. I certainly read, that was certainly one of the ones I read, yes. Mm. Um... No, not consciously. It was a long time ago, but I keep thinking I should get another copy of it and read it again. Mm. But, yeah, it's, it's very much... Um, I think that the what-if has always intrigued me from being a very small child and just didn't realise that you were allowed to ask questions like that. Um, and, you know, similarly, I, um, I really didn't mean to go into anthropology at all. I trained in politics and history through my undergrad, and then kind of had the great uh, good fortune of being employed as a, a, a research officer on a project in PNG when I came out from my undergrad. And that introduced me to Papua New Guinea and the Pacific. It introduced me to uh, relationships and ideas that became really critical to my thinking. And then when I uh, began the PhD, I knew I wanted to keep working in in Papua New Guinea and looking at those questions and, and working with those people. And it was really over the period of doing the PhD, that anthropology became the discipline that most clearly let mm. me try and grapple with the questions that seemed really pressing and, and pertinent. Uh, methodologically, it was what I just kept coming back to as the most fitting way to, to be there and to ask those questions about the world, and it kind of stuck. Yeah. Which kind of brings us to the, the next question, because you've both written books about Papua New Guinea, and this place has been the centre of sustained anthropological interest for a very long time in terms of the discipline. So why do you each think that Papua New Guinea has attracted this interest and why is it sustained for such a long time? I think, you know, I, I think it is a place of sustained anthropological interest, but I also think slightly ambivalent anthropological interest 
as well. I think PNG has meant different things to anthropology at different times. And, you know, I mean, certainly there is, I think, a long tradition within the discipline that has gravitated to the kind of the linguistic and the cultural diversity. I think there is something about PNG that lends itself to a model of, of anthropology. You might, I don't know, call it old school for, for want of a better term, that has been attracted to um, the idea, at least, of kind of small, bounded, quite culturally distinct places and people. That's not necessarily a model of anthropology. I'm, I'm hugely comfortable mm. with that. That's you great. Know. <laughs> <laughs> no ask you said. Right? Yeah, okay. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I think there are clear reasons why PNG has, you know, kind of lent itself to work kind of in, in that vein. But I think for many of us, what is so fascinating about PNG is that it is such a site of spectacular connection and diversity and, and creativity. It is a place of incredible interconnection. Um, and, you know, and, and transnational connection as well. That's certainly what keeps drawing me back there. But, you know, the wonderful anthropologist Paige West talks a little bit about this idea that PNG has become almost a little embarrassing for anthropology, you know, in, in recent years, because I think it is aligned um, in the kind of the disciplinary imaginary with that particular mode of doing anthropology in very, you know, kind of quite disciplinarily conservative ways. Hey, I'm older than you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm treading carefully. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, do, you, um, do you have a different view, Monica? No, not necessarily, but I think that, that it is actually the changing attitudes to PNG in anthropology reflects the changes in PNG itself. It's the, right. For me, it was the extraordinary diversity, so not the boundedness, but the fact that in the place where I worked, you had language groups of 500 people. But that means that there are no bounded language groups. They're all inter mm. interconnected. The importance here is how do they come to differentiate themselves and to negotiate those changes? So I think the diversity was extraordinarily important. Mm. This was a place where there was enormous diversity, enormous variety. You cannot generalise in any way about any aspect of life in Papua New Guinea the highlands, the lowlands, the coast, the inland. The, I mean, I work with two groups of people living next door to each other in a really remote part of New Guinea, Gubor and Batamani, and they are completely different in really important ways in the way they understand their relations to land. How does that difference emerge out of the fact that they are neighbours, that they live next to each other, that they are looking at each other, you know, through the other's eyes all the time as well. Mm. So I think it's that diversity, but diversity as process rather than as a, a set of, you know, we can put, stick pins on the map and say these people. These people. Uh, the other thing that is undoubtedly one reason why anthropologists both were fascinated by the place and um, are embarrassed by that fascination now <laughs> is that... It, it was one of the last places that had not been touched by Western society. It was the radically other in that sense. I mean, 1930s for Europeans to go into the highlands. The area where I work, the first government patrol to actually go to that place was 1968. Mm -hmm. So for people who are interested not in, in documenting the particular bounded units, but documenting change, understanding how things come to be as they are and how they change, PNG is the place to be. But the other thing I do have to say is that anyone who's ever been to PNG seems to fall in love with the place and never entirely leave. And I think that's, you know, because it's not a place that is, it's not the other in, in one sense. It is actually a completely dynamic and riveting place to look at the questions that matter yeah to the world. And that was what struck me. You know, I came out of this kind of quite conventional politics training and looking at questions of globalisation and statehood and modernity and the nation and, and so on. And, you know, and you had this particular lens and frame for thinking about these things and then went to PNG. And it just bust open these questions in the most spectacularly interesting 
ways. And that, for me, is what keeps drawing me back to PNG, not for some kind of, you know, remote authenticity yeah. and, and bounded otherness. no such place. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I wonder, so I, I wanted to ask you about the way that uh, anthropological interest itself is sort of fed back into PNG. And you're making me think at the moment about the way, you know, anthropological concepts have uh, have evolved over the last couple of generations of scholarship. Uh, so I might maybe ask about how anthropology has grown up alongside the changes in PNG. Uh, you know, do you see a relationship between these different moments in PNG's uh, entanglement with modernity and the way in which anthropology is thought about maybe PNG or maybe itself? Well, one of the most obvious things, if you think first of the influence of anthropology on PNG and something that I have to grapple with all the time is that the language of anthropology, of tribes and clans and etc., um, has become completely vernacularized mm. and is now everywhere. Um, but it's and people use this language in creative mm. ways as well then. So um, here in the most remote part of the Highland Fringe where in Juha, we suddenly get John Wabisala saying, I am the paramount chief of the Gubor. Um, so the language of the islands has filtered through. Um, they have to fill in forms to become legible to the state and people want to be visible to the state here. They want to access services. They want to access benefits. They want to be recognised as owners. They have to fill in forms that ask them, what is your tribe? What is your clan? What is your sub-clan? Are you patrilineal? Are you matrilineal? Um, things that are meaningless in this place. But these are terms, these are concepts that have come from the early anthropological engagements in different parts of Papua New Guinea that have now become reified and become really powerful parts of people's imaginaries of how to be Papua New Guinean. There's a recursiveness there because that actually means that anthropologists are forced to say, what did we mean by those <laughs> concepts? In the mm. What were we thinking to say that there were these bounded entities when there never were? Mm. So I do think that that's been a major part of the the increasing emphasis on on the recursiveness, the the processual dimensions of anthropology mm. of mm. An, an anthropological eye now. Yeah, and land as kind of a domain of social life and of anthropological inquiries. So you know, just, uh, in, you know, so implicated with, with those feedback loops. Absolutely. I think, you know, the very idea of customary landowner, of being a customary landowner, which has become so intrinsic to contemporary Papua New Guinean identity, mm. the idea of custom, you know, of customary forms of, of connection to land, as, as custom as kind of a mode of being in the world is, you know, kind of saturates yeah contemporary Papua New Guinean imaginaries and, and very much in an ongoing dialogue with anthropology. But also with a sense that being a landowner is a unitary thing. That Whereas in yeah. fact there were always multiple, there, there were very different ways of being mm. a landowner, understanding your relationship to land. But now, again, in the place where we work, we get people saying things like, under Papua New Guinea law, only men can own land. Things that, again, is in the writing mm. of a Melanesian ethnography and a Melanesian anthropology. We are completely changing the way these people imagine what it is to own land. Mm. I don't know what they think they mean when they say only men can own land. What, what does to own land mean? So anthropology is actually complicit in the very processes of codification that, you know, people like you and I and many others are interested in critiquing, you know, and it's a really complex question for me then what responsibilities emerge out of that? How do we actually account for that in our own 
work. You know, I always think in Australia, if I tell someone I'm an anthropologist, the chances are they're going to ask me if I dig up rocks, you know, like people haven't got a clue really what anthropology is, but I've never had that problem mm. in PNG, you know, mm. like anthropologists are just so part of the social framework. I got picked up from the hotel last time I was in Port Moresby and the, um, the guy driving me in the minibus was you know, chatting away and he said, oh, what do you do? I said, oh, I'm an, I'm an anthropologist, you know. He said, oh, yeah, oh, we had one of them once, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'd just I'd like to zoom in on this just a little bit. When you say that these kind of social facts are circulating from anthropology, uh, are we talking about social facts from old texts? Is this the like the ghost of M- Margaret Mead and, 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 and Bateson? Or uh, mm. are, there, are there contemporary anthropologists who are perpetuating these, these social facts? I, I, I think we all are, to, to a degree, however much we, you know, even those of us who were consciously trying to do the very opposite. I don't know if it's mm. so much a matter of kind of individual sinning anthropologists as it is the discipline itself, I, I think, perpetuates um, it. it is articulated in languages that have become incredibly meaningful within PNG yeah. themselves. And it's very hard to talk outside of, of those languages. So do you think in, I don't know, 15 or 20 years, people in PNG will be talking about the difference between my ontology and the ontology of folks in the, uh, the next, next town over? <laughs> That's a very good question, mm. yeah. <laughs> okay, I, no, I, I feel like that's a I hard sus- pass. <laughs> I suspect not. I suspect not. Um, mm. Partly because what gets what's been picked up are the categories, mm. the things like tribe, clan, mm. the things like patrilineal and matrilineal. Mm. So the the nouns and the adjectives. It's, it's also partly, and I think this is really important in terms of where land is here. Interestingly, there is some interest since the book went to Papua New Guinea, went to the area where we're working, in, re, in taking the word Orbi back, which is a word that local people used. It means literally a man mound, and it is... It has no edges. It is about the raking together of people into uh, an activity group that is continually changing. Mounds dissolve and are reassembled in different sorts of ways. Whereas a tribe has edges. So for me, this is a a really important distinction. But I don't think they're going to start talking about categorical ontologies (laughs) and (laughs) relational ontologies. But they might start talking about concepts that don't have edges in quite the same way. So there may be some taking over of some of that language, but, I mean, that was, I think, the the thing I was most surprised by and pleased by when Willie rang up and said that word, Orby, you got that right. We've made a mistake here in moving to clans. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that, that that's nice. Um, but I don't know that it will last <laughs> because they have to speak to other people and other people don't have the equivalent word. Mm. So, yeah, which is so your entanglement thing of the entanglement of custom and modernity. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, I think even when that language does get picked up and these ideas of, you know, of, of clan and these things with edges, as, mm. as you say, which, you know, particularly when you're going through, so the area I work, well, the, the book is, is based on work in Medang, which is kind of a province up on, on the north coast. And, you know, and communities there, many communities are engaged in these processes of customary land registration. So a kind of state-mediated process through which you do literally have to, you know, to, to, up the to make the edges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You, you list those who are part of your clan or sub-clan and there's, you know, kind of all these different forms of of language and, and categorization that go along with it. And it is a process of marking the edges of social groups that did not have edges before. But even then, I think what is still critically important to hold on to is that the lived experience of that and the lived practice of that often functions in ways that actually blur the edges. Yeah. And you know, and, and those categories and processes also get used and deployed in ways that are incredibly creative mm-hmm. and also push back 
against these modernising processes and these demands for, for legibility, even as people are actively seeking to engage yeah. with them. So it's certainly not a, a one-dimensional um, or one-directional process oh, of, of transplantation. So in, in both of your books, uh, Tori Becoming Landowners and Monica uh, Navigating the Future, uh, what we're learning about is in part the effects of kind of two major forces. One, resource extraction, particularly by um, external parties, uh, often multinationals, and on the other hand, the formalization of land rights laws. And Tori, you point out that 97% of land in Papua New Guinea is under customary tenure, and customary tenure is inalienable. Now, for our listeners in Australia, that might sound very robust you know, and impressive compared to the land rights laws that exist here in Australia. But I was wondering if you could, for people who don't really know this context, that sounds great, you know, that there's lots of customary title and it's inalienable, but that's not actually a good representation as of what is on the ground. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's both a very uh, compelling statistic and a very fraught statistic. I mean, partly it's simply fraught because it hasn't been revised for, for so long. I mean, this is the statistic that's been going around really since independence. But it's fraught as well because I think it captures a particular form of reality in relation to land that doesn't actually necessarily map onto the complexities of of people's lived relationship to land. So very little land, it's true, in PNG is kind of alienated outright as state-owned land or as freehold title. So it's that kind of roughly 3%, I mean, that's probably more or less kind of accurate, that is um, that was alienated prior to independence pretty much and, and has remained as such. The, the remaining land in the country under the, the 1975 constitution is protected to quite a degree as kind of inalienable customary land, that in itself kind of being a category that's very much a, a produced category. Um, but of course, in, in lived reality, a whole host of actors, Papua New Guinean as well as uh, foreign uh, and corporate actors have found ways of working around that reality. So uh, most commonly, uh, large scale corporate interests, resource extractive uh, companies and, and initiatives and so on have kind of effectively gotten hold of land through long-term leasing. So typically 99 year leases that uh, nominally uh, retain the ownership of land in the hands of, um, of so-called customary landowners. But of course, for all intents and purposes, land is practically alienated uh, and the lived experience is very much one of alienation. But it is one of those points where you really, you see that kind of, that ontological friction between what is articulated through this legalistic category of customary land ownership and what is actually lived and experienced in any kind of meaningful way by people who understand themselves to be and experience themselves as alienated and dispossessed. We don't have the same sorts of issues in the area that I'm working in, yet I would say the same thing. It's not corporations that have come in, just really minimal. But there is a sense of alienation as people move into even what in our terms is a small town. Okay, so I, where I've been working, people lived in communities of 25 to 50 people scattered half a day's walk apart, really thin on the ground. Someone comes in and builds an airstrip. Someone, you know, usually facilitated by missions, but in this case also by a company that wanted a corporation that wanted to explore for gas in the highlands. So the mission and the corporation are uh, collaborating in building this airstrip. But it provides medical services, it provides schools, it provides um, a portal to the outside world and for all the things of the outside world to come in. People understandably are fascinated and start to congregate. There's 700 people around that place now. The people whose land it is, the Amati people, they don't own that land anymore. Um, how does how's that sort of alienation occur? And, and the thing is, um, alienation we think of in terms of the buying and selling of land, the signing over of land, but alienation 
can occur in other ways, in a place where an, relations to land, um, ownership, identification, association with land comes through using the land, you can wake up one morning and discover that there are all these people who are now associated with this land in people's mind as mm. much or more than you were. Mm. You've lost it. So that's, I mean, that... That's a traditional, that's a customary process. But because the, the wider dynamics have changed, people's relations to land changes. And that's as fraught and as much a source of tension as someone coming in. It's not as dramatic, it's not as visible, but um, as someone coming in and saying, We're, we have a lease now, we're going to cut all your trees down and plant oil palm. I think what I, I, I'm a little concerned that some of this becomes seen as there are these processes over there that are legal, political processes, when in fact there are new, the, the processes of relating to land are changing everywhere in Papua New Guinea. And if we don't understand those sorts of changes, we're not going to understand why when the company comes in, there is real dispute over who owns the land, who should benefit from the land. Uh, the next question I wanted to ask you is very much about that. You use the word navigation. Uh, Monica, you use the word navigation uh, in Vi's sense to describe mm -hmm. the landscape and the, the social uh, thicket, to borrow one of Tory's terms. Mm. Uh, could you tell us, first of all, more about why why that term feels especially useful? Because the landscape just isn't stable. The social landscape, well, in terms of the, the recent earthquake, even physically, the land isn't stable anymore. Mm. But, but, but there has never been a sense of the landscape as unchanging as, so the social and the political landscape as being un unchanging, as being something that you could um, plot a path through and find your way to the future that you imagine you would like to have. Because every step that you take changes that landscape as well. You, s you move to an airstrip and your relations to land are changed in that move, just by that move. So, so the the sense I was trying to get at there, but the but the other sense I want to get at is, for these people, it has always been uncertain, always been changing. You cannot, you could never, say I know what will happen tomorrow. It was very much a place where, you you paid attention to what was happening around you. You had to pay attention to what was happening around you. What the, I mean, so so Vi's, Vi's original concept was um, using the metaphor of being on the ocean where the waves are, are moving at the same time as you're trying to move through. Um, you don't know, you have to pay attention to what the winds and currents are doing and, and adjust what you are doing in order to get to where you want to go. In, in these sorts of places, in New Guinea, that was equally the case. You didn't know whether the nut trees would flower, you didn't know whether the rain would come, you didn't know when it would come, you didn't know where the pigs were. You constantly had to pay attention to what the world around you was doing, to all those other actors in the world, and that includes the weather. Um, and this is something that people still do now a mining company comes, you don't know what they will do tomorrow. Will they pack up and move on? So you continually pay attention to what the signs of what might happen next so that you can adjust your behaviour accordingly. And it frustrates them enormously that the company representatives don't pay any attention to them. They live in a a world where that presumes there is some certainty about what will happen next. So I just wanted to pick up on that sense of these are people living in an uncertain world, which was not something that deprived them of power, but um, in a sense 
reminded them that they had to pay attention all the time to take control of whatever opportunities arose. That, I mean, that seems like it resonates really closely with your uh, discussion of the, the relationship between custom and modernity, Tori, you know, uh, neither eclipsing the other, uh, you know, and by sort of li- living in this kind of la- lava lamp-like mm. space. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so I talk about that in the book in in terms of entanglement and the entanglement of customer modernity. You know, and I think in that I was trying to get at a couple of things. And, and one, one is that, you know, and this is resonant with kind of broader debates within the discipline. I do think we need to talk about and engage forms of, you know, of kind of dramatic and substantial difference in the world. Uh, but I am really very reluctant to fall back on models that ascribe difference to kind of counterposed bodies and times and places and being. And I think a lot of the debates that have gone on around kind of the ontological turn and around, you know, the kind of perhaps the risks inherent in that of kind of of essentializing and falling back on essentialized forms of difference, I I think they've been really important kind of discussions and, and critiques that have been made and but I do want to talk about the, the kinds of difference that these terms of kind of the customary and the modern can can denote quite usefully I think but to find ways of talking about that social difference that don't um, just ascribe them to to different people or different times yeah. or different places and so for me looking at kind of the customary and the modern as analytical terms that can describe and articulate forms of difference was really important, but I wanted to look at the ways that they actually are enmeshed and in the language I use, entangled in people's uh, lives, in their subjectivities, in their individual embodied experiences, as well as in the social relations that they are embedded in. And this does, I think, you know, come through so strongly in the ways that people engage to land and the way that land becomes a realm through which these forms of difference are uh, are negotiated, encountered, and sometimes they collide and sometimes they, you know, kind of um, collaborate in in curious and and interesting ways. And so that kind of that complexity of the lived experience of change and encounter was really important to me to try and articulate. Yeah, in your book, you talk about it in terms of managing abstraction. And I found that a really fascinating description of what people are trying to do is it's not, yeah, as, as, as you've both been saying, not one order has replaced another, but new relationships have emerged and, and they take a form of abstraction that is uh, not previously encountered. Right. So, you know, I mean, I, I think you can talk at kind of a level of kind of great generality, as long as you keep bringing it back into conversation with the particular. But, you know, at a level of generality, I think modernity is a process of abstraction. So these processes of transformation in relation to land that modernity often kind of uh, instigates, so processes of land reform, of customary land registration and the making of of clans and landowning groups that have edges, you know, these are all processes of abstraction, the forms of codification, including all of those that anthropology has been very complicit in, in relation to land. These are processes of abstraction and they are processes with which people um, are, are brought into encounter and in which they are, are seeking to um, to navigate. I love that term, Monica. I think, you know, that idea of navigation is so apt uh, in this instance. And, you know, I think it's important to recognise that actually customary forms of land and customary frameworks in their flexibility actually give people a basis to negotiate these abstracting qualities, but also within limits as well, you know, and I, I think we need to both hold on to the capacity for negotiation and flexibility that emerges out of customary ways of being in the world and simultaneously hold on to a sense of the often very unequal relationships of power Mm. um, and, you know, and the sometimes quite uh, coercive and exploitative relations that also accompany often these modernising processes. So, yes, for me too, I would strongly say I I write about relational and categorical ontologies and epistemologies. They're not either or. 
They are never either or. You cannot have relationships without entities that are brought into relationship. But equally, you can't have entities without the relationships that give them form. So you may foreground them, foreground one or the other, depending on context, depending on what you are trying to do at the moment. So again, that sense of people, people use this stuff, right? Where there is a, a real power imbalance is that there are structures that oblige people to use certain kinds of approaches, certain kinds of terminologies that create grids that they must fit themselves into, that doesn't mean that they become nothing but the grid. And that's the really important thing, that they may well talk about you know, this bounded group owns this bounded area of land. Um, only PNG, only men can own land in Papua New Guinea. Oh, but I'm off to um, I'm off to go hunting on my mother's land tomorrow. Um, just and and they don't see any ambiguity there because they no, that's the wrong phrase. They they don't see any contradiction there because they're actually operating in different mm. domains. They're negotiating different relationships with those two modes of of reality. Um, and if we think that what is happening in Papua New Guinea now is that people are all being turned into modern neoliberal subjects, whereas before they were something nice, um, we've just missed the point. Mm. They can use those, they can use those languages, they can use those approaches um, to address some of their agendas they'll use quite different approaches to address others. That's one of the things I appreciate about both your work. Uh, you know, I, as I was reading uh, both of your books, I was thinking back to um, like sort of historical or ethnographic history on other areas of, of colonial contact, uh, thinking, like, uh, thinking about Tim Mitchell's work on Egypt and, and moments of resistance, and also thinking about James Scott's work on resistance or Clastris, and they all sort of pose this kind of fairly stark dichotomy between either being co-opted co -opted in or finding a way of escaping. You give, you give a much more, I mean, a much more interesting, but also a much more nuanced and, and sort of entangled account of it. I'm not sure if there's a question there. That might just be a celebration no, of your work. <laughs> I, have a, I was thinking the same thing about um, the sense of, uh, you get in, in, in your book, Tori, um, I think you talk about in terms of humiliation and pride these kind of affects or, or emotions or that can occur in these sites of, of, of development that are quite ambivalent or, 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 or contradictory that, that put a lie to that idea of, yeah, of, of the binarism, I guess. Like that, again, not a question, but is there, is there anything you'd like to say about that? I mean, or maybe talk about that, that, inst that example? Yeah, you know, so I mean, so that, uh, that part of the book is looking particularly at communities in Medang that either have been affected by kind of existing operations within the tuna canning industry, um, as well as communities that are um, negotiating the very long, slow, fraught, possibly never to actually realize, be realised uh, development of uh, um, what's called the Pacific Marine Industrial Zone. So it's enormous kind of 216 hectare special economic zone that is slated for development in Medang at any rate. Um, you know, and so the, the growth of the tuna industry there in the province is kind of one of these kind of resource extractive stories. And tuna itself becomes this kind of really interesting marker of um, of these kind of engagements with with modernity. These quite fraught engagements with modernity. So particularly, you know, kind of the the growth. So PNG has this amazing tuna. Um, it, you know, like something like ten percent of the world's tuna catch comes from PNG's waters. Um, it's incredible tuna. Some of the most delicious tuna I've ever, you know, kind of tasted in my life. And there is, you know, so these huge efforts to kind of to grow an industry there to capitalise on this really kind of amazing tuna. And as part of this process of um, of change, tuna is increasingly something that is consumed in canned form, tinned, tinned fish, tinned tinned tuna 
And, you know, kind of as the industry grows, people are, well, I mean, uh, to one extent, it's harder for, for people locally to catch tuna themselves. But also these little tins of tuna have become these kind of symbols in many ways of of the modern and of social change and transformation. But but they really capture kind of the ambivalences of those processes of change. So particularly in areas, these areas where I've done work, uh, communities around kind of Nob Nob and Sia, where uh, there is an existing tuna cannery. So people have been displaced from their land and from kind of subsistence modes of agriculture. Many of them now work within the cannery itself and so are, for a range of reasons, increasingly reliant on store-bought foods, which includes these little tins, tins of fish. And so canned tuna has become kind of in some ways a marker of of a developed life, of a more modern life. It denotes that you have cash income, which allows you to buy store-bought goods. But people also know and they feel very keenly the fact that the tuna that is sold in little cans in PNG for domestic consumption is not the same tuna that is packaged up and sold for foreign consumption, particularly tuna that goes to the very lucrative kind of EU market, what gets packaged for domestic consumption is the dark meat, kind of the really the poor quality meat of the tuna. And it's the meat that people know is basically what goes into pet food. Mm. So people, you know, they, they live this really, I think, kind of often quite fraught, ambivalent um, affective experience of social change where something like a little, you know, the tins of fish can both be kind of a, a lived marker of, um, of achievement and attainment by these particular standards of modernity and, you know, quote, development. But people know that they're eating the meat that white people basically feed their pets. You know, and, and so I think trying to hold on to the affective complexity of that actually tells us an awful lot about that experience of social change in PNG. Very different where we are, of course, because you don't have... But, but there are other aspects where it's the same thing. To be employed to work as a labourer in the high mountains on seismic lines is at one level an enormous marker of status. So people in this dramatically hot climate wear full-length clothing, boots, heavy shirts, um, oh, and sunglasses, protective eyeglasses, etc. They wear work clothes all the time, wandering around in the lowlands because it, it, it says, I am an employee. And yet at the same time, they resent being told what to do. Mm. So they want to be employees. They don't want to be employed. Mm. <laughs> they, they don't want to be put to work. So the ultimate dream for all of them is to open a trade store, to be a business person, to produce mm. for themselves and to exchange with others, not to be employed by someone. Mm. And yet at the same time, this ambivalence of the, the sign of being an employee is just such high status. That reminds me of a fellow Cootie song. Do you know the song about um, uh, about the businessman? Uh, it's a song about it being hot in Nigeria and everybody wearing these long yep. woolen suits to, mm. uh, to affect the, the appearance of development. So, yeah, ultimately the desire is to... Be autonomous, and we've written about that a lot too, that the valorising of autonomy, not of independence, not of not working with others, not of collaboration, but of I don't need particular others. I don't need you. I don't need the company. I don't need... Um, I'm free to, to choose who I will work with and when I will work is, is really important. And um, how that then feeds into... These, these conflicting desires to also have... It's not just the money that they earn, it's the status of being employed, of having been picked out to be employed. 
So we're sitting here in Australia, a, a resource frontier in a way that you know has thrived on resource extraction. Um, and, and one of the ways in which Papua New Guinea has been talked about a lot is, again, as a, as a resource frontier. Here in Australia, the mining boom is over, uh, ostensibly. What is the, the near future for Papua New Guinea in relation to resource extraction? Does it look um, different to how it has in the recent past? In terms of oil and gas, if you read the business pages, if you read government statements, it's just going to get bigger and better. At the same time, there is a real risk that the current PNG LNG project will be closed down for some considerable time um, by hella people who are extraordinarily frustrated that after four years of gas being sold, they still have seen no royalties. So the amount of gas that they're finding just keeps growing. Um, Exxon Oil Search announce on a daily basis that they've, we've just found this fantastic new field at Maruk, or um, we've just reproofed Penyang and there's three times as much gas there as we thought and where you know elk antelope is going to sort of set it so it's just more and more there's all good but they haven't worked out how to do it yet and they will keep alienating people and they keep reproducing the sorts of tensions and anger that led to Bougainville that led to the problems with Octeti and that have led to Hela province, which is the heart of the PNG LNG project, disintegrating as a prime site of civil unrest at the moment. So I don't know the answer. Um, that resource talk sounds so familiar, I mean, here in Australia, that mm. the publicity of um, the publicity of these resources has a social life in a a productivity. Very importantly, a report has just come out by the Jubilee Foundation that has pointed out that all the modelling for the PNG LNG project said that this was going to be wonderful, it was going to double the GMP of the country, GMP's gone down. It was going to triple employment, employment's gone down. It was going to increase household income, household income has gone down. All the models were legitimate at one level. Um, None of the predictions have come out and um, the conclusion of the report is pretty bluntly that Papua New Guinea would have been better off without the PNG LNG project, which was going to transform the nation. That's very recently out. Uh, It took about five seconds for Peter O'Neill to declare it fake news before he then admitted that he hadn't read the report, um, it's still playing out. With that in mind, I mean, I, I want to ask about the future of anthropological work in PNG. So I, I, I'm also interested in whose voices are, and what kinds of voices are going to be most relevant to people in PNG uh, from here on out. You know, who are they listening to? Uh, and are they still listening to anthropologists Uh, how do we contribute to that conversation? I think anthropology is still relevant. I think people still want anthropologists said they would like their own anthropologists and I think it's going to become increasingly important that we do find ways to bring local people in along the trips. But but more importantly, the, the kinds of work that's done is going to have to change. So what I'm looking at working on next is not going back to Suwabi and saying how people in this place sort of reimagining the world but looking at the people who the brokers the people who are actually reaching out beyond this place who are the conduits for information back and forth how are people imagining these brokers how are these brokers imagining themselves that includes things like there's about 15 people from this area on Facebook now. Um, About three of them actually post more than once a year. Um, But there's an imaginary going on there and the ones that are posting are young people who clearly have political ambitions. Um, 
who are um, buying into some of the, the major challenges these people are confronting, um, I think it simply will not be possible because no, no one in PNG lives in one place anymore. They're all moving. The ideas are moving. They're moving in cyberspace, not just in physical space. It will be a very different kind of anthropology, but I think the questions of how do you negotiate identity and power and those questions and relations to land, because land does remain important, even if you're in Port Moresby, I think we're finding new ways to do this stuff and it's not resolved yet. And I think land becomes... Or land continues to be an important issue for investigation in PNG because it is an important issue for the world. You know, like the transformations to how we as people engage with the ground beneath our feet, with the environments that we Mm. are in, with what it is to be connected and of place, but also to be people of of movement. These are oppressing human questions. These aren't Melanesian questions. You know, it's just Papua New Guinea happens to be a really fascinating place from which to ask them. But we have to ask them in ways that approach PNG as a place that is deeply implicated with our own lives. I think for me you know, the direction that my own work has been moving over the last three years has, or or my way of, I suppose, trying to cultivate what feels for me like a more kind of intellectually and methodologically and ethically rigorous practice as an anthropologist has been to turn my attention increasingly to those kind of post-colonial dynamics that bind Papua New Guinea and Australia together. So uh, increasingly I'm less interested in going to PNG as um, a place where one goes to to write about um, the Pacific. You know, the the Pacific Studies scholar Terence Wesley-Smith has this great distinction where he says, you know, we don't need scholarship about the Pacific, we need scholarship of and for the Pacific. And I mean, I'm increasingly trying to find ways, I think, of doing anthropological scholarship in in which the attention to PNG is there because it is... um, part of shared terrain and shared shared futures and, and shared imaginings. And so that for me is, is really important. You know, do Papua New Guineans still want or need anthropologists? Look, I think Papua New Guinea is a place where anthropology has often been held to account, mm. you know, and I think that is one of one of the many things that PNG actually has to offer to the discipline. I think it is a place where anthropology will continue to be held to account and that can only be a good and productive thing. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you, Monica, for joining us. And thank you, everybody, for joining us here in Anthropology at Deakin. This episode has featured a conversation with Monica Minigal from the University of Melbourne and Victoria Stead from Deakin University. If you'd like to learn more about Monica or Victoria's work, you can find some recommended readings in the notes for this podcast or go to their university staff profiles. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can find us on Twitter at TDNeal and at DHBorderGiles or at blogs.deakin.edu.au slash anthropology. <laughs>